like last time that we did this, we're going to spend the first like 15, 20 minutes, I'll give a bit of an overview of Philemon, and then we'll break up into two or three groups um, and work through the questions that are on the sheet. So on this sheet, uh, there are, first of all, a few headings. That's what I'm going to take us through to begin with. And then you'll see the questions further down. Uh, don't worry too much about those questions right now, but we'll get into those later on. Uh, did most people get a chance to read Philemon? Yeah, so you don't need me to read it now. We're all clued up. Yeah, great. Um, okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the encouragement and the blessing that reading your word has already been to us as we've read this letter to Philemon. Uh, but Lord, we thank you as well for the rich gift that it is to come out on a night like this and meet together and gather together around your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, we come together as those who have a vested interest in what we're going to be looking at. Because Lord, this is your word to your people. That's us. Lord, this is your word about the gospel that has saved us. Lord, this is your word about our saviour who we love and owe everything to and love to see and see more clearly. Uh, so Lord, we pray, help us now to read it again, listen again, discuss it together with our, not just our minds engaged, but really with our hearts on fire at what we're seeing uh, afresh in your word, what we're being reminded of again through your word. And Lord, may the fact we're together be a great help and encouragement to us. Uh, Lord, may we take this opportunity this evening to build one another up and lift each other's eyes to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, you've, you've read Philemon, so hey Sarah, all right? Sorry, you haven't missed anything. Well, the prayer, I mean, that was important, but there you go. Um, so you've read Philemon, you've, you've seen that actually it's a pretty short letter, so you've probably already got your heads around most of it, but let's, let me just give something of an intro to it. Uh, this is literally a companion letter to Colossians. It's written at the same time, delivered with the letter to the Colossians by Tychicus and Onesimus. It's the shortest of all Paul's letters in the New Testament, uh, but hopefully we've already started to see its small size doesn't mean that it's small in importance. Uh, so just imagine for a moment, uh, it's quite handy, we've got an aisle down the middle. Imagine here we are, this is our little church, um, and running down the middle of our church is a division between us. We all love Jesus, we all affirm the supremacy of Jesus, we all love sound doctrine, we love the gospel, we love Christ-centered singing, we love coffee and tea and biscuits and whatever else, but imagine we hate the people across the other side of the aisle. I love the way you look at each other. What, what, what would that look like? What would that be like in a church to have that kind of fallout and animosity between us? It, it wouldn't be good. And if the primary purpose of Paul's letter to, to the Colossians, that much bigger letter that we're doing on Sundays, uh, is to commend sound doctrine and call the church to love Jesus, the purpose of this little companion letter is to call them to love one another. And to do that by reconciling two individual brothers in Christ. So you see on your sheet a quote here um, from a commentator, Garland, who says, when we read it side by side with the letter to the Colossians, we learn that getting relationship, relationships straight is just as important as getting doctrine straight. 
And so in this little letter, we hear God himself teaching us the importance of getting relationships right. And in particular, the importance of forgiving and being reconciled to those who have wronged us and sinned against us. So I've just got a couple of headings to help us this evening. Uh, the first is that this letter shows us the life-transforming power of the gospel. And we see this on full display in this letter in the three main characters who take center stage in it. Uh, first of all, we've got Paul. We'll start with Paul. Uh, I don't think it's irrelevant that this letter on forgiveness and reconciliation and transformation should be written by Paul. Uh, he was surely writing about something that was especially close to his own heart because of his own former life as a Pharisee and a persecutor of the church. But I'm sure you'll know the story, the risen Jesus met Paul on the Damascus road, opened his blind eyes, pardoned and forgave all his sin, and then commissioned him to be an ambassador of reconciliation, carrying the good news to the Gentiles. So Paul knew firsthand this life-transforming power of the gospel. And now here he is in a prison cell. He's there for preaching this good news. And he's writing a letter to one particular Christian brother in Colossae. Uh, and that brother's name is Philemon. Uh, I guess in a sense, the star of the show, he gets the letter named after him. We don't know much about his pre-Christian days, but we do know that at some point in the past, he too came to meet Jesus and experience the life-transforming power of the gospel, uh, actually through, in a sense, the ministry of Paul. And now Paul calls him a beloved fellow worker with him in the ministry of the gospel, verse 1. He's a living witness for Christ in the city where he lives. He's, uh, he's, we know he's well off, probably a successful businessman. And the Colossian church actually meet in his home. So it's a, fair, a fairly good sized home that he's got. Uh, and he's a fairly hospitable guy bringing the church in to meet there every week. Philemon is clearly a faithful Christian and there are many evidences of grace at work in his life. Uh, Paul gives thanks for him because as he writes in verse 5, I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Philemon is a joy to know, verse 7. Uh, Philemon, I think, is the guy that you want in your church. You want him in your home group. You want him meeting your workmates. He's the guy you want to imitate. Paul says that it's refreshing to be with him. Paul is locked up in this dungeon or prison cell hundreds of miles away, but even there, he says, the extent of Philemon's love for God's people brings Paul much joy and comfort. The question is, how has Philemon become such a joy to those around him? Well, it's not by his own effort or by his own doing, but it's by, again, the grace of God at work in him. And so in verse 4, Paul doesn't congratulate Philemon for these evidences of God's grace. Paul thanks God for them. So here again, on full display, is the transforming work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. This is, this is what God does. God loves to do this. He saves and transforms men and women through the gospel of his son. Uh, and then thirdly and finally on the cast list, we have Onesimus. He's a, uh, a slave or a bond servant who has formerly betrayed his master Philemon by running away uh, probably stealing from him on the way out of the door. And Paul, employing some first century humour uh, and something of a play on words in verse 11, 
Paul implies that Philemon's running off was really just the epitome of Philemon's, uh, sorry, of Onesimus's work ethic anyway. Uh, because although Onesimus's name literally means useful, Paul writes that in the past he was entirely useless. There you go, poor chap. He's the employee who turns up late and bunks off early. He's the friend who promises to meet you and doesn't turn up. He's the guy who you invite to dinner only to find at the end of the evening he's stolen your cutlery. Onesimus was a waste of time, not only an enemy of God, living a life of rebellion against him, but also just considered useless by the people around him. But having run away from Philemon, he meets Paul, he hears about Jesus, and he himself is saved and transformed. And so Paul wants Philemon to know, Onesimus now lives up to his name and is useful to the people around him, verse 11. He has proved his usefulness to Paul and he will no doubt prove his usefulness to Philemon when he returns. He's no longer a thief. He's no longer a layabout. In this incredible turnaround, Paul himself says that he would be very glad to have Onesimus stay with him and serve alongside him during Paul's imprisonment. He also says, verse 17, he counts him a partner in the gospel. So this great change has occurred. Onesimus is a changed man, making, in a sense, this kind of hat-trick of characters in this letter who are a testament to the life-changing power of the gospel. But the gospel's work is not finished here yet, because not only is this letter a testament to its life-transforming power, its greater focus still is on the gospel's reconciling power. So that's just the second of the two things I wanted to highlight this evening. The reconciling power of the gospel. Paul is going to be sending a very different Onesimus back to Philemon. A very different man to the one who stole and ran away from him sometime before. But, but you kind of wonder what kind of reception will Onesimus receive when he returns to Colossae? Will he be welcomed? Will he be flogged? Uh, will he be kicked out on the street? All these things are possible, but what should take place? What, what is God's will for two believers between whom there's been this past offense, there's been some kind of relational breakdown? What is God's will in that situation? Well, Paul writes this letter to explain why it is that Philemon should welcome and receive Onesimus with open arms of love. And in fact, he gives four reasons, at least by my count, as to why we should forgive those who have sinned against us and welcome and receive them in love once again. So I've put these four on your sheet and I'll just run through them pretty swiftly. The first reason he gives for forgiving Onesimus is that they are now brothers in Christ. Paul has led Onesimus to faith in Jesus and as a result, Paul has a deep affection for his new spiritual brother. Uh, he refers to him in verse 10 as his child in the faith. And verse 12, even sort of more tenderly, he calls him my very heart. Paul loves Onesimus. And now Paul wants Philemon to learn to share that same brotherly love, that same brotherly affection for Onesimus. Uh, so when Onesimus comes home, Philemon is not just to grin and bear it. He's not just to pretend to let bygones be bygones. Paul says, verse 16, he's returning to you not just as a servant 
or an associate, but as a brother. Onesimus may well take up the role of servant again to Philemon, but he must always be much more than that to Philemon now as well. He is forevermore now a beloved brother. Reconciliation took place once and for all when these two men chose to put their faith in the one saviour. They have been adopted into one family. And so grudges and bitterness and holding on to an offence don't have any place in the picture anymore. From now on, that reconciliation that these two men have received with God must be played out in their relationship together as they embrace each other as brothers. Second reason for forgiveness, Paul gives, is the wisdom and providence of God. Paul suspects, uh, I love that, it's probably too light a word, but was it? Paul suspects that the whole set of circumstances might just have been planned and orchestrated by God. So verse 15, he says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Uh, and this reminded me of the story of Joseph. You know, the famous sort of pronouncement at the end of the story of Joseph, Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So Onesimus ran away with evil intent. But Paul calls Philemon to look at how things have turned out and to see the good hand of God's providence at work here. Yeah, Onesimus, he meant it for evil against you, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that Onesimus might be saved from wrath and raised to new life, and he's now your beloved brother forever. That's essentially what Paul is saying. Which should prompt us to ask, what perspective do we take when we consider our sufferings and our hardships and even the ways that other people might sin against us? Paul challenges Philemon not just to take a Philemon-centered view of life. Uh, I have a very Matt-centered view of life. And I tend to read everything through that perspective. Philemon, he's going to be tempted to feel every offense against him as a terrible disaster. But Paul wants him to take a God-centered view of life, trusting that God is both sovereign and good. And we too can even rejoice when we're wronged in the knowledge that when God is in charge, he ultimately turns all things for our good and his glory. Just look at what he's done for Onesimus. Third reason he gives for forgiveness in this letter is sort of the argument of the greater debt the greater debt um what's uh what's obvious here actually is there's no brushing under the carpet the fact that Onesimus has wronged Philemon and he does owe him a debt Paul's call to forgive and welcome him doesn't ignore that past debt if it's left outstanding it's going to make reconciliation strained and artificial at best so the debt must be dealt with and in one of two ways. Either someone pays the debt, or Philemon himself cancels and absorbs the debt himself. Well, what does Paul recommend? Uh, first, he, Paul suggests that he, Paul, could pay the debt. Have a look at verse 18. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Then Paul signs it like an IOU. He says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Paul won't let it stand in the way of permanent reconciliation between these two brothers. If, if Philemon must be repaid, then Paul will do it. But then Paul adds, I love these words, 
essentially says, this is to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Meaning, Onesimus may owe Philemon a bit of time, a bit of money, but Philemon is the greater debtor by far. First of all to Paul, for bringing him the saving message of the gospel, but ultimately he's the greater debtor by far to God, to the grace and mercy of God, God actually bestowing on him eternal forgiveness and salvation. The question is then from Paul, subtly, cleverly, who owes the greater debt? Nothing can compare to the cost Jesus bore in his own body to redeem you and me and Philemon. Should we not then be merciful as our heavenly father is merciful and quick to forgive whatever is owed to us, absorbing any costs ourselves? If Philemon is going to hold on to an offence and if we're holding on to an offence right now, if we're still withholding real heartfelt forgiveness from someone who has wronged us, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for to happen? Are we waiting for them to repay us and somehow make amends for the pain they've caused us? What we have to ask ourselves is which is the greater debt? Is it their debt to us or our debt to God? Which he, of course, has paid in full in its infinite fullness, cancelling it once and for all at the cross. And so the message of this letter is, shouldn't we then do likewise, bearing the cost and cancelling the comparatively trivial debt owed to us by the one who has wronged us? That's the third reason Paul gives here to forgive. But you know, if three's not enough, there's a fourth one as well. The fourth and final reason is that, is that forgiveness is the way of love. Or what we might call the you-know-you-want-to argument. That's what it is. It's the you-know-you-want-to argument. Amidst all of his conflicting desires, at the heart of it, Paul knows that Philemon will want to forgive Onesimus. Paul says in verse 8 that he could be so bold as to command Philemon to forgive his brother. It would be entirely proper for him to do so, especially as an apostle writing to this uh, brother in Colossae. Yet, verse 9, for love's sake... I prefer to appeal to you. Again, verse 14, he says, I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness may not be by compulsion, but of your own free will. Now, why does, why does Paul write like that? Not commanding, but appealing. Well, it's because he knows Philemon's heart. He knows Philemon loves Jesus. He knows he loves the gospel. He knows he loves other believers. He knows that Philemon loves loving. And for love's sake, Paul wants him to do what he loves doing and extend his love to Onesimus. And this again is that life-transforming power of the gospel at work, that reconciling power. When God saves us, he gives us new hearts that increasingly love Jesus and love the people for whom Jesus laid down his life. Paul also actually reminds Philemon that loving reconciliation is not only going to bless Onesimus, it will bless Philemon as well, verse 6. Giving Philemon a fuller, richer understanding of God's grace towards him too, but only as he passes on and extends that grace to others. And Paul alludes to the fact that it will bless the whole church around him as well. 
as his faith is shared through extending forgiveness and welcome. It will bring even more joy and comfort and refreshment to the hearts of everyone in the church around them. So let me just conclude. There is nothing in this letter that suggests that forgiveness is cheap or easy. Sometimes forgiving another person is immeasurably costly and something for which we need great help. But God's word remains clear that if we love Jesus and we love those he died to save, then we must be people who extend forgiveness and welcome to those who have sinned against us. Here in this letter, it's amazing in such a short letter, so much packed in, here are the God-given tools for achieving that genuine heartfelt forgiveness. Remember the reconciliation that took place at the cross. Trust the wisdom and providence of God. Remember the greater debt by far is the one that's already been paid for us and choose the way of love. And as the final verse of this letter reminds us, God has not left us to do this in our own strength. The grace of Jesus himself is readily available to help us forgive. So he writes, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit.